0: ...work on the ground uh, in Afghanistan, as we heard this morning, uh, and is generally very engaged with the issues of, that both NGOs and governments work in. Sir so
1: It's
2: uh, a real great pleasure to uh, follow the introduction of uh, um, one thing which in academia you can really say, an inspirational leading figure and I would like to say this about uh, Anne-Marie Slaughter, who um, has brought quite some change uh, to the Woodrow Wilson School. And I say this also with address to our alums, not just because now we refer to it as the Slaughterhouse, but uh, <laughs> nevertheless. <laughs> uh, we are delighted, and uh, I was asked, uh, and Liechtenstein Institute was asked by um, Dean Slaughter to... Um, sponsor the um, uh, opening panel and uh, these first sessions uh, here in this uh, second colloquium on um, the role of of, um, NGOs uh, in uh, global governance. And as uh, it was mentioned earlier, uh, we have been extensively involved in uh, state and security building processes in Afghanistan. I would like to uh, say something here which uh, I think any Princetonian can be proud of. Um, The Liechtenstein Institute and the Woodrow Wilson School was host uh, six weeks after 9-11 to a top secret meeting uh, between eight leaders of Afghanistan. Uh, I will never forget the um, security precautions we had to take um, to fly these people out from Kabul and bring them over from Germany and Iran. And we got a panic call from Swiss Air International from Zurich saying, these people have no visa. It's six weeks under 9-11. How does this function? <laughs> Half an hour later, we got this call from this lady saying, I've worked here for 25 years. This has never happened. They got the visa within 15 minutes from the American. So everything is, anything is possible if you work with Princeton. <laughs> uh, and uh, we talked uh, to uh, them, and I arranged uh, seminars for a week on um, decentralization, self-governance, inter-ethnic relations, federalism, and regionalization. (laughs) Um, It was um, an unforgettable experience for all of us. Um, And since then, we have produced several reports uh, and uh, publications which are also used in our teaching and training here at the Woodrow Wilson School and um, have become also UN documents. It's now an absolute pleasure and delight, and I'm very much uh, uh, in the name of my faculty and student colleagues uh, looking forward to what I perceive is a remarkable opportunity to listen uh, to two um, outstanding leaders and experts in their respective fields, and uh, we will hear um, two keynote addresses, which then should foster um, discussion and exchange, on the subject of the United States and Iraq, uh, the road ahead. This is a particular delight also for me to be able to introduce um, a lady ambassador uh, who is uh, the nominated representative of um, the, um, I assume, the Republic of Iraq. Uh, yes. uh, to, so
1: far. <laughs>
2: to, <laughs> yeah, I know, uh, To the United States, um, Mrs. Rendra Franke, uh, who is um, a born Iraqi. Um, has uh, been one of the um, key figures uh, for the Iraqi diaspora in the last decades and has single-handedly created one of the major beneficial, legal, and uh, widely appreciated uh, uh, foundations on Iraq, the Iraq Foundation, which today has um, uh, several projects um, uh, running in Iraq uh, with a combined value of several million dollars. Mrs. Franke has uh, um, spoken uh, on behalf of the Iraqi people uh, in all continents of the world, has also testified, uh, has interacted with the uh, European Union, the United Nations, and obviously American governmental organizations. Besides that, she has published, um, and I would really like to um, emphasize, a co-authored volume which she published in 2000 with St. Martin's Press with the title, important for us today, The Arab Shia Forgotten Muslims. Uh, needless to say, this uh, uh, book, as I said this morning, has uh, just recently um, received Outstanding Evaluation by St. Anthony's College in uh, Oxford, and uh, Mrs. Frankie holds degrees from Cambridge University and the Sorbonne. and it's my real pleasure to introduce Ambassador Frankie to you um, to present us her perspective on the U.S.-Iraq relationship. Madam, floor is
3: Thank you very much, very much. It's my privilege and honor to be here with you, and thank you for the invitation. Uh, I should point out that I now speak not as the Executive Director of the Iraq Foundation, uh, but as the representative of the Iraqi Governing Council. Um, this is an important distinction for me to keep in mind and for also for you to keep in mind. Um, it does place some constraints, but um, um, I will try and be as candid as I can, and probably uh, will upset some people, uh, hopefully not too much. Uh, it's been a year since... Uh, can you not hear me? Okay, is this better? Okay. It's been about a year since uh, the regime of Saddam Hussein was overthrown, military action spearheaded by the United States. And it's a good time to take stock and to see what has been done well, what has been done badly, and to try and look a little bit ahead to what we still have to deal with. Uh, I think the very first point that I must make, so that there is total clarity on it, is that we must never lose sight of or underestimate the importance of Saddam's overthrow. It marks the resumption of history in Iraq. The vast majority of Iraqis, all the Shia, all the Kurds, the majority of Sunnis are grateful that the U.S. spearheaded this action and released them from the nightmare of Saddam's long rule. You remember that Iraqis tried to do this back in March 1991 in an uprising that involved millions of Iraqis and swept 14 governorates. They failed miserably. Several coup attempts in the 1990s were also crushed and a lot of people were killed in the process. The central, most important part of Iraq's modern history is going to be the overthrow of Saddam Hussein and all Iraqis recognize it. Another thing to be grateful for is that the war was brief and coalition casualties were very few. It's easy now to be uh, distressed by the casualties as we all are, but we must remember that prior to the war we were expecting casualties in the thousands amongst allied uh, troops. Iraqi casualties of the war were much higher. We don't have a figure, and that's to be regretted. But, nevertheless, it was not the slaughter that many of us feared. I certainly feared tens of thousands of Iranian dead and injured. And just to put it in perspective, by contrast, the uprising in 1991, the crushing of the uprising, killed an estimated 30,000 people in southern Iraq alone. In other words, the regime killed about 30,000 people in the mere space of three weeks that it took to quell the uprising. However, the ease of the regime's collapse should never camouflage the fact that this was a huge, seismic upheaval in Iraq that shook the politics, the institutions, and the society of Iraq to their roots. In May 2003, when I returned to Iraq, I found people exhilarated and full of hope for the first time since 1980. It is very difficult to convey in words the sense of excitement, the sort of electrifying feeling in the air in Iraq after May. The sanctions regime is over, and money is pouring in for reconstruction and for other projects, humanitarian projects and so on. Iraqi incomes have soared. And again, it's important to put this in perspective. We have a very high rate of unemployment still. It's questionable, by the way, whether it is any higher than the unemployment rate in countries like Egypt and Algeria. It's probably similar. What we tend to forget also, is under Saddam Hussein, people were equally unemployed. And I often remember the Soviet saying that we pretend to work and they pretend to pay us. Uh, in Iraq, even those who did work got virtually no pay. And most people had, if they wanted, to make ends meet had to have two or three jobs. The salaries in the public sector uh, have soared, and the salaries in the private sector are now comparable to neighboring countries. Political life is very active. Political parties are being formed all the time, and there is hardly a day... In Baghdad, when there isn't a political conference somewhere being held by some group or another, there are over 200 newspapers and periodicals, and there's fierce political debate in these publications that spans the full spectrum of political opinion. These papers are not afraid of criticizing the Iraqi governing council, they're not afraid of criticizing Amer- uh, Iraqi ministers. And they're not afraid of criticizing the Americans or the coalition. The most exciting development, as probably uh, those of you who are here this morning uh, can imagine, the most exciting development for me is the revival of what we call loosely civil society. In other words, those groups of people who come together voluntarily to protect Advocate for and serve certain interests that are common to that group or common to a constituency of people in Iraq that they represent. This, I think, is an essential component of a return to health of Iraqi society and is going to contribute to health in Iraqi politics as well down below. There are NGOs. Forming faster than we can count them, and as I said this morning, we have an estimate, which I can well believe, although there are no, um, there's no scientific data, and we can't say that somebody has gone round all the throughout the country counting. But the estimate is that there are about a thousand NGOs in Iraq covering an entire spectrum of interests and activities, and I'm talking here about Iraqi NGOs. And I'll give you an example of the activism of these NGOs and interest groups. In December uh, 2003, the Iraqi Governing Council passed a law imposing sharia on personal status laws. And what that meant is that issues of inheritance, marriage, divorce, um, child custody, would now follow Sharia law rather than civil law. Um, Women's groups, which are very active in Iraq today, felt that this legislation put them at a severe disadvantage and they began to demonstrate, agitate, send petitions, go on TV, and so on. Eventually, they forced the issue, and this law was repealed in February 2004, and now personal status law is back under the civil code rather than the sh- Sharia code. This is a very important landmark in the ability of civil society to influence and shape policy and shape legislation. I, I should uh, mention that, of course, this was totally impossible under, under the old regime. In uh, March, the Iraqi Governing Council signed a transitional administrative law, which in essence is a sort of an interim simplified constitution, and it has been, I think, rightly hailed as the most enlightened uh, law in the region. But the really important thing about this law, in my view, and I attended some of the sessions in which this law was being debated and, and drafted, The most important thing is the process of negotiation, the process of political haggling, the process of debate and and of post trading and compromises that went into writing this law. It was an example, commentators have said, oh, you know, well, the members of the governing council disagreed on this issue in the law and that issue in the law. Well, of course they did. And what legislation goes through the US Congress without weeks and weeks of de- sometimes acrimonious debate and stories in the press and so on? This was a process that is normal to a society that is discussing a political issue of great importance. This transitional law will now govern Iraq for the next two years roughly until January 2006. Contrary to widespread expectations, Iraq did not succumb succumb to uh, civil war and the country has not broken up into statelets. A lot of people were predicting that as soon as Saddam Hussein disappears, we are going to have a breakdown uh, in the political structure of Iraq and we're going to see at least three states forming. I do not believe that the fact that Iraq has not disintegrated is simply because there are uh, coalition troops in Iraq. Uh, There there is, um, there was, and there continues to be a strong Iraqi national sentiment that you see even today, and you see it in some uh, instances where it sort of works towards a negative in a negative context, or at least it's uh, depicted as a negative context. But certainly in my uh, experience in Iraq from May until the end of November, the sense of national solidarity remains very strong. And that includes the Kurds who have um, had to give up a great deal of their gains in the 1990s in order to make compromises on the transitional administrative law. So we have made um, progress. We have done well in some areas. And um, I think the picture is not as gloomy as one reads in the press. However, we have to be realistic. And we also have to look at the mistakes that were made over the last year. And I think most of them arise from the oversimplified view that policy planners took of the political and social situation in Iraq and of the impact of this earthquake on Iraqi institutions and society. The first mistake I would point to is that the intervention, the invasion of Iraq and the liberation of Iraq was carried out without an Iraqi face. And what I mean by that is very... I can, I can point to it graphically. Uh, we Iraqis in the diaspora had urged the United States to give the act of liberation an Iraqi face to give Iraqis who are committed to freeing their country a stake in the process and it was very disappointing in April, March April 2003 to see on television the images of American soldiers going into Iraqi villages with a phrase book an Arabic English phrase book those soldiers didn't speak Arabic, certainly didn't speak the Iraqi dialect, which is very different from modern standard. And the villagers spoke no English. And there was no means of communication between the troops that were entering into the towns and villages and the Iraqis who stood aside and wanted to figure what this all, all meant communication efforts between the U.S. and the Iraqi population were both clumsy and often futile. In my view, over the next few months, there was limited effort to give Iraqis ownership and leadership of the whole enterprise of liberation. In May and June, we were still talking about not an Iraqi government, but an Iraqi advisory council. That the government would be held by the CPA, that the CPA would in fact be the government of Iraq, and that there would be a number of Iraqis who would act as advisors. And our answer was, no, it should be the other way around. The government and sovereignty should be in the hands of Iraqis. And Americans and others can act as advisors. In the end, we came up with a rather uneasy balance, where you have an Iraqi governing council, which originally, initially, had limited authority, and a coalition provisional authority, which had veto power and which had ultimate say and which, in fact, initiated laws and so on. It was a very uneasy equation, and the Governing Council, uh, to do them justice over time, uh, began to wrest authority from the CPA. They began to draw more and more power away from the CPA and to themselves. Joined with this is the very unfortunate use of the word occupation, And, again, Iraqis simply don't understand what what the thinking was behind that. Occupation is a word that Iraqis know very well. We were under Ottoman occupation, and then we were under British occupation. And this is a word that is anathema to Iraqis, who are particularly proud and nationalistic. But I would venture to say that it's anathema anywhere in the Middle East and probably anywhere in the world now it's not easy to go to Africa and say well, you know, we've got an occupation here the lack of sensitivity on this issue was um, astounding the the lack of sovereignty the the, 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 uh, uh, hiatus in sovereignty or the suspension of sovereignty um, combined with the word occupation had a very deleterious impact on the receptivity of Iraqis to coalition forces. And I think to this day we are reaping the consequences of those errors. Another mistake that was made very, very early on, and again one that Iraqis simply could not understand, is the total... Failure of the US to impose law and order in Iraq, or even to signal that law and order were a high priority for the coalition. And again, you saw it on television the sight of Iraqis looting with impunity while US troops simply looked on. And uh, some of those U.S. forces said, well, we were here to liberate Iraq. We were not here to maintain law and order. Well, if you are an occupation, you are supposed to maintain law and order. But that was, in a sense, a signal to Iraqis that maintaining the rule of law was not an important priority for the U.S. And I think, again... Iraqis picked up on that, and it had terrible consequences down the line. Connected with that is the failure of the U.S. having dissolved the Iraqi army and the police force having essentially evaporated, failing from the first moment to say, we are now going to start building a new Iraqi army and a new police force. It took a very long time until the U.S. began to uh, vet and uh, select and train people. And by then, the security situation had deteriorated so badly that there was a rush to action, and we began sacrificing quality for quantity. Two further issues are now being called mistakes, but I think they are far less clear-cut. And in hide- hindsight, it's, it's easy to say these were errors, but I still think that they were much more complex decisions than uh, we will give credit. One of them is the dissolution of the Iraqi army, and the other one was the debathification law, um, both of which were... The, the, the dissolution of the Iraqi army was uh, a decision made by Ambassador Bremer in Iraq. The debathification was initiated by the Iraqi governing council that had the endorsement of the uh, CPA as all orders and laws must. These are not easy decisions. In other words, neither the dissolution or keeping the Iraqi army would have been an easy decision, and certainly debathification also is a difficult issue. We know that the Iraqi army... Uh, or certain segments of it, were responsible for gross human rights abuses against the Iraqi people. And that many army officers were, uh, are guilty, probably, of crimes against humanity or war crimes, whether in Iraq or in Kuwait. The whole structure of the army had been conceived as a tool for suppressing uh, Insurrection, rebellion in Iraq, and for punishing the Iraqi people, rather than as a force to defend Iraq against external aggression. So there was a culture in the army that was, uh, I think, correctly perceived as distorted and as probably dangerous. And of course, most senior army officers were intimately linked ideologically and by family and clan association with Saddam Hussein's regime. Something had to be done about that. As to the debathification, uh, one of the problems that we had is that the bath is not only a number of members, but also is a culture that has permeated society, permeated politics, permeated government institutions, and that culture had to be eradicated. The question is: Do you eradicate it by simply eradicating the batteries themselves, or what is the compromise? And I think in both of those, the error was not uh, simply an error of making a decision. It was really an error of strategy and process. Um, I, I won't go into that because that's not particularly the subject. But I think those now today they are being called terrible mistakes. I don't necessarily think they were. In the in the application, perhaps, but not in the spirit. Uh, also, in my view, very little work has really gone into building uh, or putting in the building blocks of a democracy. Uh, we have not put enough effort into developing government institutions. Uh, we have not put in enough effort to ensure transparency and accountability in government and in contracting methods and so on. And, and there has been very little investment in the institutions of civil society, in civic education, in democracy education. All of, there has been a lot of stress, uh, and somebody mentioned this this morning, on hard-hat projects. And obviously the country needed those. But so much money and so many people were being mobilized uh, to put Iraq back together again, to do the nation-building, that the it seems surely there, there, there must have been room enough for the soft core, which is the institution building, the, the, the capacity building, and so on. Um, another mistake, I believe, is that there was no effort to hold local elections on a municipal or district level uh, during this whole period. And I uh, think that had we held elections in the summer or in the fall of 2003, the issue that then became very explosive in January and February about the transition and the need for elections to effect a transition would have been mitigated. It may not have gone away altogether. But had people seen in the summer or the fall that, in fact, elections and representation and participation was on the cards and that we were actually going to be implementing that and that we meant it when we talked about representative democracy, I think the, the, the bitterness that has arisen about, well, you talk about democracy, where's democracy? Uh, would have been at least less than it is now. And uh, perhaps the the worst problem, although this was an inadvertent problem, it's a sort of problem of omission in a sense, and clearly it has happened in Afghanistan, is the gap between expectation and delivery. Um, Iraqis had gone through 13 years, almost 13 years, of a devastating sanctions regime, the country was impoverished, the infrastructure was collapsed, people had no incomes, um, and liberation to them meant pri- primarily, not sort of Byzantine political arrangements, but goods and services that could come to them and that they could benefit from directly, you know, clean water, electricity, food, health care, and so on and so forth. And this is what they wanted above all. Unfortunately, the delivery of these services was delayed. By the time it got up to speed, we had a security problem in which installations, pipelines, electricity, telephones were being bombed as soon as they were put in. And so we entered into this vicious cycle where as fast as you put things in, they were destroyed and meanwhile people continued to feel that nothing was being delivered to them. Meanwhile the political process was going on uh, haltingly and so on but that is not what most Iraqis cared about. So all of this brings us up to the present state of affairs and where we are right now and what we can look forward to. Uh, Obviously I can't go ahead without mentioning the two issues that have preoccupied Iraq and the media for the last two weeks, and that is the uh, question of uh, Jaish al-Mahdi and Muqtada al-Sadr, his movement, Jaish al-Mahdi, on the one hand, in southern Iraq, and on the other the problems we have had in Fallujah. Um, What what I think uh, we should do is make a clear distinction between those two situations. They're not identical by any means. Uh, On Muqtada al-Sadr in southern Iraq, um, people have called it an uprising. Um, I find this, uh, it must be extremely upsetting to those millions of Iraqis who participated in the uprising of 1991, where something like 14 million Iraqis rose up and took government away, local government away from the regime. al Sadr's movement is not an uprising. Um, it represents a small percentage of the 14 million uh, Shia in Iraq. This is not to belittle it, because, in fact, what this movement represents is a, is a grievance, is a real grievance by a number of people, by a sector of society, the poorest of the poor, the most undertrodden underclass in Iraq, who, over the past months, have seen none of the assumed benefits of liberation. Their economic status has not improved and they have received no political status or recognition. And their sense of victimhood, which they have carried from Saddam's era, has now been augmented rather than diminished. Um, In my view, the the issue of Muqtada al-Sadr is something that should be taken care of by Iraqis. The uh, Ayatollahs of Najaf and the Marja'iyah of Najaf uh, have been conducting negotiations and they are very anxious for Muqtada al-Sadr not to cause problems within the city, which is a holy city, and they have asked him that if he wants to fight to please leave Najaf and not embroil them in attacks and fighting that would... Uh, desecrate the sanctity of the city. Uh, so, in my view, Muqtada al-Sadr <coughs> is a containable problem. In Fallujah in the uh, western west of Baghdad is a different uh, issue because Fallujah has become the confluence of a number of strands in Iraqi society and an external factor, all of which are sort of festering. One of them, of course, is the, uh, those people who have lost most by the change of the regime, the people who had power, who had political clout, economic uh, influence under Saddam Hussein and who were connected to the regime politically and through a, a network of interests. The other strand is the a brand of Sunni fundamentalism that has been growing in Iraq since the 1980s. And we outside Iraq had heard about this. We would get reports all the time, but it became very striking when I went to Iraq in May, and as I moved around and met with people, I came across documents dating from the 1990s of underground Um, essentially Salafi groups who were operating in that region and who uh, Saddam Hussein must have felt at one point that he had to turn a blind eye to and uh, he made the same mistake that many other governments have made in that he felt that they could be uh, allies of his but of course everything always, um, there's a backlash. And the third strand are the people who are coming from outside Iraq, the international terrorism groups that are providing the inspiration, the organizational capacity, and we believe in the last few months also the funding. That is a much more difficult problem, and it has to be addressed as a security problem, uh, a political problem, in the sense that m- many of these people feel completely disenfranchised, and an economic problem because those areas probably have the highest rate of joblessness in Iraq. Uh, on June 30th, one more minute. Um, on June 30th, we uh, will regain our full sovereignty, and the UN through the mediation or intercession of Lakhdar Ibrahimi, uh, are working on at least sketching and suggesting a process for uh, a government that will take over sovereignty. It is going to be uh, an interesting process to watch, but I think what we really need to look forward to much more than that are the elections in uh, January 2005 because that is going to be the decisive moment in this process of transition. Um, I think I've taken too much time. But I'll be glad to answer questions.
2: Uh, I think uh, you um, have the remarkable opportunity here to, uh, on the one hand, listen uh, to the very insightful and rather sobering comments of someone who uh, is heart and uh, uh, native uh, home obviously is Iraq but who lives uh, uh, in the United States and uh, describes uh, the situation as it occurs in her old uh, home, Um, somebody who lives 5,000 miles away from his own home, I can uh, sort of relate to this, but on the other hand, I think it must be um, uh, quite uh, uh, something for um, uh, the next speaker who uh, by the sheer profession and his life calling um, is part and parcel of that group uh, who is in this territory right now. Uh, to fulfill his or her duty and uh, as we have seen in many instances especially in the last uh, uh, couple of weeks um, pay the penultimate price or sometimes what is even worse uh, 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 sustain injuries which changes their life dramatically and as somebody who has been in two peacekeeping operations myself I sort of uh, relate to this as well it is hence uh, with tremendous uh, gratitude and honor for me to introduce to you Brigadier General Jeffrey Schlösser, who is currently serving as Assistant Division Commander of the 101st Airborne Division, Air Assault, uh, who has had a remarkable uh, experience as a general officer amongst the last posts. uh, He was Deputy Director of G5, Chief of Strategic Planning, War on Terrorism, on Joint Staff from 2001 to 2003, and he served as Chief Office of Military Corporation Kuwait, from 2000 to 2001. General Schlösser graduated as uh, Officer Candidate uh, in 1977, and I have to say, um, I never had the opportunity to work with uh, uh, the aviation brigades, but uh, his uh, um, career in engineering, aviation, and special operations aviation uh, units uh, from platoon to brigade level is absolutely stunning. What was for me very impressive is that uh, through Liechtenstein uh, private diplomacy uh, meetings we were involved in Haiti, in Albania, uh, and Kosovo, and um, um, it seems that uh, General Schlösser has served in all these theaters. Uh, for instance, he um, commanded task forces deployed during Operation Uphold Democracy to Haiti in 1994. Uh, he uh, was commanding the task force Hawk Operation Allied Force, Albania, 1999. And you may recall that this is just five years ago. And there he also operated Task Force Falcon and Operation Joint Guard 2 in Kosovo 1999. Um, in addition to this, uh, General Schlösser served uh, in tours twice in Germany, in Korea, in Jordan, and Kuwait. <laughs> I have also the honor to emphasize that I don't think General Schlösser would have been running around with a phrase book uh, in theater because he does speak Arabic. Uh, and he, he also francais uh and he made his master's at the John F. Kennedy School of Government and uh, has also a degree from Georgetown University. Sir, it goes without saying, we are delighted that you found the time to be with us. Thank you,
4: well, thank you very much for that uh, very warm introduction, and uh, I'd also like to say, uh, thank you on the part of uh, the Wilson Center for inviting uh, a soldier out to come and speak to you all today. Uh, and I'd also like to say um, it is really an a opportunity that uh, I think is very, very important for you to have as American citizens, by and large. Uh, and, as citizens as a, of, a, uh, uh, of a larger international order for, for certain, a soldier come back and tell you uh, how it looks like not on television but in the sense in, in reality uh, what we think is actually happening in Iraq. Now, my boss is a Major General David Petraeus, and uh, I think uh, he was wildly. Well, let me just say that he definitely wanted to come back and give this presentation. He was called away, uh, and he's, in fact, back in Iraq right now working on the security situation and, and good ideas and a way ahead, which is an obviously important thing for what we're trying to talk about today. So what I would like to do is, is it's after 1 and it's after lunch, and so I'm going to use a little bit of a multimedia presentation approach to uh, trying to show you some pictures Again, don't think CNN or Fox News. These pictures are all basically done by uh, young people uh, that were young soldiers, young photographers. I'm going to show you a video at the conclusion of my remarks that that was made totally unannounced to those of us that wear stars. Uh, And then they showed it in our tactical operations center, and we said, we like that. You'll see what we mean as we kind of go on with that. So with that, can you go ahead and go to the next slide? It's probably the wrong one can you go back all the way to the first one? while while he's going through and trying to do miracles with uh, the slides they teach generals to be very live and and smooth on their feet let me just start off by telling you that i'm going to show you through a whole series of slides there we go Uh, where we started from and i put it in context because we all have different experiences and we all have different visual moments contextual moments of what Iraq means to us right now after basically a year. The slide that you have up up on the the top there is full of these military graphics, and I know that's very difficult to see. The bottom line, though, is down to the bottom. We started off in Kuwait. We moved there in February and March as a division. Now, what is a division? It's 17,000 soldiers, 4,000 vehicles, uh, 256 helicopters in in the case of our, our unit. And the part that most people associate with combat operations started essentially for this division on March 22nd. And we moved, as you can see, these large arrows going up towards uh, Najaf, Karpawa, Halal, uh, and then finally up into Baghdad over a period of time. And you can see the dates up on up there. And then eventually we moved from Baghdad up into Mosul. These were combat operations and were involved in, in absolutely uh, fighting an enemy that was fighting back uh, against us. During this time frame, we were moving fast. We didn't spend a lot of time in any of these cities. And one could probably argue at this point in time that we're bearing some of the fruits of that as we move forward, because again, we were trying to do things very, very quickly. And uh, in the sense, we were trying to remove the, uh, Saddam Hussein, uh, with, while not creating very much damage, either to the infrastructure, but most importantly, To uh, civil society, that which actually we thought might have remained uh, in spite of the regime. But the bottom line then is all the way up at the top. By uh, those dates up inside, they're around April 22nd or so like that. This division was in an area that is basically spotlighted by the either the second or the third largest city, however you want to argue it, uh, in Iraq uh, Mosul, and then a small surrounding area. Next slide. Now, this is, uh, I, this is not meant to be Geography 101, uh, but I often find that when we talk uh, to our citizens that uh, it's a little unfamiliar about where these different units all were. The one that I'm talking about, our division was up in the north here. There are four provinces up there, uh, Nineveh, and then you can see what are commonly called uh, beyond the Green Line or the Kurdish uh, stronghold areas. Uh, that occurred up there that is the hook in Sulaimania, as well as Urbil. This is a very large area, and, and it's basically bordered on the west uh, by Syria, and to the north by Turkey, and to the east by Iran. It's also a historic route of importation of, or exportation, or basically a route through uh, Mesopotamia of a variety of different goods. Some of them have been illicit for three to 4,000 years. What you also see up there is is that we weren't alone. All those little blocks up there represent other large divisions of about 17 to 25,000 people, and you can see that they're in, in very large areas. Iraq is a huge country. Those of you that know California fairly well, think about that. It's about roughly the same size, roughly the same population, and roughly just as difficult to do things such as provide stability or provide civil projects that are meaningful for a citizen in one particular area. Next slide. This is kind of a snapshot of that northern area. And what I would just like to do is draw your attention to again, because I think geography does play a role. The distance between over here and over right on over here, and this is the width of our, our, our what I would call our, our operating area is the distance from New York City to Boston. And if you went on this area and was over here, this is Philadelphia to to New York. Do the multiplication, it's 75,000 square miles. You can see the population over here is about 6 million, 6.4 million uh, inhabitants, largely speaking, uh, citizens. A huge area, and not all of it uh, basically urbanized, although it's, it, again, spotlighted by Mosul, a uh, city of some 2 million people or so. Next slide, please. Now, there is no organization out there that doesn't have a mission statement. And so, as you know, the military always has one. This was ours. Take the time to look at it because it's not your standard military mission. You pay militaries that normally do things like this, to fight what we thought was a coalition or an anti-coalition force. We try to maintain a secure environment, but look at all these other things. And as we start and we think about the role of the military and the role of NGOs, You'll see how important it is as we go on and we talk about the different things that this division did over 12 months. You'll see that, that it's not the military alone, and we cannot operate in an environment where there is a firewall built between us and our other organizational groups, such as NGOs. Next slide. This is a report card. Now, it's very, very complex. It's very much one that, uh, that General Petraeus used in Sarajevo. Uh, right before he came to our division, and then one year later, after leaving Sarajevo for a year, came to Iraq for over a year. Don't worry about all the writing and the typewriting things and all that kind of stuff on on that far right. But look at the color bands, and look on the left side about the groupings. Now, those of you that are American citizens, is that what you thought that your military was doing when you were watching the media? Probably not. Some of these things were. Clearly, we were out there, and we were trying to do things such as ensure that former regime loyalists and non-Iraqi forces, uh, read, uh, say, uh, foreign fighters, were not controlling the security department. You know we were going to do that. But did you know that we came in thinking that we were going to be deeply involved in a variety of other different things, such as public services, all along the line? Let me tell you about how we did it. Next slide. That slide showed you three types of categories of things. Combat operations, and I'm just going to highlight just a couple things, and we're going to move beyond that, because you see combat operations all the time in our media, and rightfully so, they are interesting. They're, they tend to be very good for 30-second sound bites. And then I'm going to talk a little bit more about what is the rest of the story. Next slide. I think most of you know about this incident. This was Le uh, uh, the sons of Saddam. We found him, he was turned in by an Iraqi citizen who was tired of having him live in his home. Uh, Of course, that that Iraqi citizen is $30 million richer. Uh, But uh, what we tried to do here was, we actually tried to arrest them. It would have been better in our mind to uh, capture them. And so we went and did what we normally do when we're trying to find somebody, is we actually knock on the gates, knock on the doors, essentially, and we were met with a, um, a gunfire. To make a very long story short, we in fact had to use tow missiles, and we uh, ended up having to kill not only the two brothers, but then also the <coughs> two others. This was ongoing in the time frame that you see there, the July time frame. That's what you think military forces do. Next slide. These are many, many other events, less uh, newsworthy, that were of the similar nature. These were combat operations. Against either high-value targets, as we call them in the military. We tried to make them antiseptic sometimes, but these were either thugs, they were enemies of the new Iraq, they were enemies of coalition forces, they were trying to kill your sons and your daughters and had, and uh, we either tried to capture them, and if that wouldn't happen, then we uh, killed them. A long series of combat operations, these are just a few that that we can unclassify but you can see ongoing throughout. But what is the rest of the story? Next slide. Okay, next slide. Stability operations, okay? I'm not here to disagree with any of the former presenters or anything like that. I'm just gonna tell you what it was like in our area and what we did. We came into the area very quickly and did a very rapid assessment within basically a day. And on the next day, General Petraeus and a team of civil military uh, leaders met with the local uh, populace, those p- type of leaders that we could go ahead and identify or who identified themselves to us. It's a very quick meeting, but through there we set a very rapid, accelerated pace of what we call early wins. We knew that the entire population was watching us. We also knew that uh, you have to adjust what are expectations? I had a, a, a Mukdar, who is a neighborhood leader, say to me personally, because we met with them every, uh, every month, he said, you rebuilt Kuwait in three weeks. Why can't you do that to Iraq? And, of course, that's not true. We're still you know, trying to, uh, to, uh well, the Kuwaitis are still helping themselves, obviously, uh, 13 years later. But uh, it's expectation management, one case. But the other case is, is to demonstrably change quickly uh, what had been a status quo, to rapidly make changes that make sense, to rapidly be, bring as much as you can into the environment. And so you can see very rapid things. Ozil schools open. we open up the bridges again, we rebuilt bridges. We we discovered something here that we didn't know very much about, but let me talk a little bit about about here. We started the process of an election. These are not general elections in the same case that we do this things in the United States, and that eventually Iraq will have. These were basically elections where we took uh, an electorate body that had been identified, self-identified in some cases by different groups. It'll make more sense when I show you what the, uh, the government council looks like, empowered them, and then they selected leadership. It was broader than they had ever had in many, many years, or I dare say forever in Iraq. Quickly uh, had a provincial council election in May and elected a governor, as well as a uh, governing council, and we'll show you how that looks. We immediately did a whole bunch of other different things. Key part here was allowing NGOs to help help come on in into an area that had been, they'd worked, then they felt was denied, they left, and we brought in some, as many as we could at this time. And again, this is early on. Uh, because by May there was actually some level of stability up in in, uh, the northern area. A bunch of other different things that you can see we worked. We opened up different uh, newspapers. We know that was important. Uh, We opened up the borders in between Turkey. We also eventually opened up the borders with Syria. You can see some of this on on pictures and things like that. Ambassador Bremer arrived in in Baghdad (coughs) in 15 May. And you can see all of this to the left had been done by what you would call a military pro-council working with the local government that we had helped establish. Think about that. Next slide. This is the governing council. Worked this very, very hard, but again, you saw how fast that happened. That happened within two weeks. Uh, the important part here is not names or anything like that, but what is important is, is in the north we had a very much an ethnically diverse area. And uh, we knew that that was going to be important, that the population see this Governing Council as as a legitimate uh, council with powers and that represented them. And so you can see the the makeup all the way down here. Now, when we started here, I'll be honest with you, we did not have any females inside the Governing Council. It just wasn't uh, something that happened uh, through the electorate. And so eventually what we did is we adjusted that. And uh, we worked with this group here, and they selected these four females. And you can see the, whether they were Kurd or Arab over on this side over here. And they joined the governing council about four months ago. Next slide. You can do all that all you want to, but if you can't get people paid, then you're stuck. And so opening up banks was extremely important. We worked opening up the bank immediately. There's basically like a provincial bank. Um, But at the point in time, there was nothing in Baghdad to allow this bank to uh, pay government workers or pay any of the salaries. Uh, And so General Petraeus met with the bank. uh, It's basically, think of it as a federal reserve or or almost, except that it's done in a provincial way. And he he said, well, what will it take for you to pay? You've got money to pay. And he said, well, we need a form. We need somebody to sign it that's in power. He said, well, who's in power? And, And finally, General Petraeus said, I'm in power. I'll sign the form. And the guy said, what about a stamp? And so we found a stamp, a form, General Petraeus signed this thing, and off we went, uh, paying government workers, paying salaries, paying pensions that had been stuck uh, for about two months. We've talked about looting, and uh, I'm just going to be honest with you folks. Uh, I lived in the area about 40 months, uh, often with my family. Lived in Jordan at the end of the Gulf War, lived in Kuwait south of here, and traveled throughout the area. I've never seen looting that would have taken place and uh, no one could have been everywhere that places were looted. No one could have been in the little villages in a 75,000 square mile area that were looted, where they went into women's schools, and these are other fellow Iraqis that went inside there, they pulled the conduits out of the walls, they pulled all the electrical cord out of the walls, they shot a dog, they took the textbooks, and they set the place on fire. Now, I can't explain that, but I can just tell you that you can't be everywhere in a country the size of California. You don't have enough soldiers. We don't have enough coalition partners. And when uh, basically Iraqi policemen and everybody else left, uh, it was almost unpreventable to be everywhere in all places. But places can be rebuilt, and that's what we did. Next slide. We also worked very hard in reestablishing security immediately. And so what we found is, is that police were by and large corrupt and so we had to reinstu- reinstitute basically this part of civil society, if you want to say that. And we went through a very tough process of selecting and then training police. We used uh, reserve uh, officers that are cops uh, for most people these days. In uh, uh, their civilian life, In military life, they're MPs. And they help train the huge number of security forces, of police forces. Is it enough? No. There's no way near. We reinstated uh, prisons. Uh, when we came in and the prisons had all been opened up, the criminals had all left, and they were out on the streets. And that's part of the problem. Next slide. <clears throat> Basically, for a country that has a huge amount of oil reserves, they have very little in the way of refining, and refining capacity, uh, especially... Um, throughout most of the area of Iraq. We had a refinery up in the, uh, in the Iraqi area, I mean in the northern area, that had not been used in the many, long, many months. Uh, we helped re-get it moving, but in the meantime, and still today, we are still importing fuels from Turkey, uh, to a much more limited extent, uh, in, from Kuwait into this area. And uh, we helped do all the security. We, of course, ensured that uh, the fuels were inbound. This is a huge job. It will continue for for probably still a couple years to come. Next slide. Okay, civil projects. Next slide. Uh, This started formally with money, Iraqi funds that had been frozen. This was not uh, to either taxpayer money, but it it has now slid to that, uh, where money was given to... Basically, division commanders to spend immediately uh, on local projects. Why was this important? Well, obviously, you had to improve the situation immediately for Iraqi citizens. Uh, they'd been living in a very, in some cases, uh, under years of sanctions, but in ma- many cases as well, where the only funds that were being given were either to build infrastructure for a, a small group, autocratic group, think palaces or they've been going to uh, buy ammunition, things like that. So, bottom line is $57 million spent on 5,000 projects in 12 months. The military, we were the executors of the spending this money. Did we do the work? No. We took Iraqi small industry, small businesses, mom-and-pop types of things. not many moms there doing this kind of thing because of the, the way that women had been treated over the last 20 years in Iraq. But uh, we, had, we basically got them off the streets, if, they, we, if we could get former soldiers off the streets, small businesses, and you can see the types of projects here that we did. Next slide. Just give you a little bit of an idea of how this money kind of got spent. Working with NGOs, we worked on the distribution of, uh, of wheat. Wheat is a huge uh, uh, resource uh, in the north. Think Kansas when you think of, of uh, northern Iraq. Well, Kansas, uh, about 130 degrees in summer, but still a very plush area um, when uh, plenty of rain during parts of the year, enough to do these types of wheat uh, projects. Again, $55 million. We basically are paying farmers for the wheat that they had grown no matter what, and then also making an investment back into this next year's uh, uh, harvest with uh, fertilizers and things like that that made some sense. Next slide. Water, very large dam up there, used to be called Saddam's Dam, now it's called Freedom Dam, and uh, it had some, what I would call, a, uh, basically engineering issues, uh, and uh, required an extensive amount of work uh, to bring it back to its hydroelectric capability, to power generation as well as its ir- irrigation uh, capability. We worked with NGOs, we worked with ones that you would call niche operators. Uh, but by and large, you saw military engineers making this happen, along with Iraqi engineers who had been working there for 30 years uh, to get these uh, places back up. Next slide. This is a, the bottom line here on, on network comm, uh, communications, on telephones, is, is that there were, telephones were not widely found in Iraq prior to the fall, and uh, there, was very rare, there was no connectivity. Think of it that way. Uh, basically, Bell South donated 300 kilometers of uh, fiber optic cable. It took about four C-17s. That's a very large aircraft uh, to bring on over to Iraq. And uh, we helped uh, Iraqi firms figure out where to put it, and Iraqi firms basically installed it. This is the way it is today. This is connectivity between, you can see the whole area that we were working. This is the former Kurdish area, and all the way out to uh, Sinjar, Tel Afar, and other areas like that, Baiji, uh, in our areas in Minimal provinces, things like that. Again, why is that important? This is, again, another infrastructure leap back to the foundations for civil society. Next slide. Hospitals. Uh, NGOs have a very clear role and played a clear role in the North, especially while they felt like they were secure. And we can talk about that in the q portion of that. Uh, international uh, role in this place, uh, in, in, in these. Still, I want to show you some numbers Well, I guess I don't have it on here, but uh, I'll be on another slide. But the majority of the hospitals were rebuilt, uh, refurbished using that CERT money that I showed you, Commander's Emergency Relief uh, Program funding with Iraqi contractors doing the work. It was rapid. It was fast. It doesn't look like one of your most modern hospitals out here, but it does have a baseline infrastructure, medical structure, that medical doctors and nurses could actually, Iraqi medical doctors and nurses could operate. Uh, Key factor. The NGOs came in, and in, in selected cases, they would do projects that were really outstanding projects, and again, much more difficult. The volume was an issue for them. And they weren't basically into going out to a small little village that had never seen a medical clinic in its history. They'd never seen a well either. But, uh, and then in, in providing uh, basically a small clinic out there with a doctor that would come out uh, once or twice a week. Next slide. Education. we talked about civil society. Well, you've got to support it here. And uh, while you wouldn't think that a military force is the right kind of thing, we knew that this was extremely important. And as you show, I showed you that slide the schools opened up within the first week that we were up there children were back in school now in many cases these schools had been totally looted and so when they went back that the remainder of that year was pretty tough but we spent the summer rebuilding schools I and mean, you can look at the numbers of 507 schools done by coalition forces, and you can see this very real role here also for NGOs and others, 400 schools. Think of that. That's almost a 1,000 schools that were done in basically the first 12 months uh, coming back within in Iraq. And they needed it. What I described to you was not an anomaly about that girl's school. The vast majority of the government buildings and schools of government buildings were destroyed by looting. We also went and worked with Mosul University. Uh, Mosul University has some 19 colleges. It's an absolutely huge uh, infrastructure, has a huge infrastructure, has a wonderful education background, basis, etc. cetera. Um, but it had been squandered over the last 20 years. What it essentially needed was to be brought back into. The internet will be brought into the internet, be brought into a web of academic research that had been ignored uh, outside of Iraq for, for years. And uh, so we helped facilitate that. A lot of different things that were done uh, uh, basically for a relatively low amount of money. Next slide. Yeah, I know, whenever I show this, people look at me and say, "No, wait a minute, General, you're telling me that you had soldiers out there doing 160 uh, soccer teams? And we're going to say, Yes, we were playing soccer. Somebody once said soccer ball diplomacy works. I'm here to tell you it does. Uh, we may not all speak Arabic, but there's a lot of folks and fellows now that uh, women soldiers and stuff that, and, uh, that have grown up playing soccer in, in America. And you would not believe how many soccer balls we went through, uh, and how much, uh, but how much goodwill it helped create. It's, it's, it may sound ludicrous to you, but it does help. We also did it for very real reasons of stability. A 15-year-old male, Iraqi male, playing soccer in a field that we helped rehabilitate, who goes home tired at night, is a much better Iraqi citizen or young citizen in our minds than one that sits around at corners and gets tired of watching a humvee go by by over and over and over again and is wondering where his next job is going to come from so that he can help his family. And we tried to do that as well. Next slide. Well, just in our society, if it is not shown, you don't know it. And, and so we know that there is a very valid and key role for, uh, for media. We helped to reinstitute that within Iraq. And uh, in many cases, it was tough being, I mean, uh, because uh, in a, in a, the way we did it was we, and they would often criticize what we were doing. Um, but that was the only way that we could actually do that. Now, one of the other things is that we, this also does it promoted accountability. Because it it essentially forced the governor, who was elected, to get up in front of the media and on his television shows and, in fact, account for his actions and account for the actions of the governing council, essentially on a weekly basis. You can see all the other good things that were ongoing throughout all this stuff. Uh, All important, all again, things that hadn't been done in years over there. Could it be done better? Sure. Next slide. The future. This is why we're optimistic and why we left. When we left on 4th of March and walked out of the area of North and we left to another military organization, by and large U.S. Army, but joined by Albanians, our good friends, the Albanians, to the South by our good friends, the South Koreans. I could go on and on and on. Um, Why we felt optimistic. And I'm still extremely optimistic in the area that I know, which is that area up to the North. I won't read all those things, but by and large, you have a minimal level of infrastructure that was not totally destroyed, that can be built upon, that can be secured, working within not only the uh, Iraqi security forces that we are still trying to help build, and yes, we have been disappointed. Will we be disappointed in the future? Sure. But doesn't it mean that it's a useful, uh, wasted effort? No. Uh, we'll be working the security portion. We'll be working with other uh, developmental items to continue. We hope that we see further uh, involvement with the NGOs. We'd like to have them kind of go back in. Every time there is a major attack of a type that causes them to leave, we lose a little bit more capacity in that area. though um, so we're also optimistic. That's basically the bottom line. Now, what I'd like to do is show you this is a uh, – Again, a video that was made of our experiences there in the 101st this is not a propaganda film this was done by two young soldiers Um, there are some uh, there is violence in it if you don't like watching violence there's no blood and gore but there is violence in it Um, please don't pay any attention to it if you want to see reality though watch it can we cut off those lights by chance well maybe maybe not let's give it a shot and see what happens I think it'll be fine. We're good. We're good.
5: Yeah, what we're made of. Times such as these call for the best in each of us. There is nothing tougher than the loss of a brother-in-arms, and the deaths of these heroic, selfless soldiers have deeply saddened all who knew them and all who have served with them. But great soldiers and great units, and you are great soldiers, and this is a great unit, Pull together at such a time. We want to find meaning and purpose in such a loss. Above all, we want an answer to the question, what good will come from this? The answer to that question is not easy. And so perhaps we can determine what good can come from this by further asking ourselves how we should live our lives in view of our limited days and limited opportunities to make a difference. And may God bless our great division and our wonderful United States of America.
4: I think I've taken more than our allotted time.
0: Thank you. I'm going to open the floor to questions. I'm going to start uh, with one of my own, but I won't ask you to answer it until we've collected a few more, because I'd like to hear from members of, of the audience. What struck me most Uh, listening to both of you and watching the video was the enormous difference in culture Uh, and not simply uh, watching the soldiers I think as much as anything listening to the music uh, and thinking that that is the music uh, it's it's American rock music uh, and it is uh, global of course in many ways but the lyrics uh, and indeed the, the rhythms are of a particular culture we heard this morning that one role non-governmental organizations can play is to bridge cultures, uh, that they are uh, the independent entities that can operate between the space uh, of the, of the government officials, be they soldiers or or non-military officials, uh, and uh, a society. And so one question I would put to both of our speakers uh, is whether what they think of that proposition, whether there are non-governmental organizations who can fill the space uh, between the soldiers coming in and beginning to set up uh, a government uh, and a Democratic civil society and uh, and government of the kind that the ambassador was discussing. So I'll put that question on the table, uh, and then I will open the floor and collect a couple of questions, and then turn back to our panelists. Please wait uh, for the microphone. Yes, there.
6: Okay. Thanks. I have a a question to each of the panelists, if I I may. Uh, Ambassador Frankie, you talked initially about how there was a lack of an Iraqi face during the initial months of the... Is is that okay? It's a bit
1: blurred.
6: It's a bit blurred. Uh, Is this better? Yes. You talked about how there was a lack of an Iraqi face during the initial months. Uh, and now referring to what's happening with Muqtad al-Sadr in, in the Upper South, in particular Najaf, there sh- seems to be a lack of an Iraqi face in response to it. Uh, there is a, I know there is are negotiations being led by various people, including the Ayatollahs and um, Abdulaziz al-Hakim, but uh, nevertheless, as far as a face and uh, a way of convincing the people that Iraqis are playing a hand in it, this seems to be uh, lacking. So I was wondering on, on your comments on that, and, and uh, General, uh, you, you showed us the mission statement. I was just wondering who wrote it, uh, whether it's military-driven or politically-driven, and, uh, and in particular to look at uh, those aspects that you wrote about the promotion and establishment of government institutions. Uh, on your scorecard, you had public services, I was wondering, do you think, from your perspective, the military is the best placed organization to provide these services after, not before, but after, for example, when Paul Bremer came? I think you've done a wonderful job before, but I wonder whether the military is best placed to do these, uh, provide these services after. Thank you.
0: I'll take that. Uh, Yes, up there on the side. Steve?
7: Yeah my my question is uh kind of related to to Dennis's and uh, directed primarily to to the general. I, I was in uh, northern um, Iraq after the first Gulf War and ambassador Frankie described the uprising that took place and the and the terrible human consequences of of that and my organization and many others were part of the effort to help the the Kurdish refugees primarily who fled across into Turkey and come back. And at that time, actually, we worked very closely with General Garner, who headed Operation Provide uh, Comfort. And uh, I have to say it's by far the most successful example of civilian-military collaboration I've experienced uh... you know over that period of time and one of the reasons it was so successful is both the military and the NGOs were primarily concerned with the welfare of the Iraqis getting them back to their homes as quickly as possible and General Garner was very much of the mindset that his job was to turn over responsibility for all such activities to civilians as soon as the civilians were there in sufficient numbers to do the job. So it goes to the same question as to you know, what the appropriate role of the military is and at what time they should be ceding responsibility for these um, kind of activities. And it goes to a point also made this morning which is no one doubts the capacity of the military of the United States. It's the most sophisticated, the most technologically advanced. But if it's not being used in support of a viable, realistic political strategy and we don't have adequate civilian capacity in the American government to fulfill these other functions, is not too much of a burden, in effect, being placed on the shoulders of the military.
0: Take one more up here. Uh, Good afternoon, my name is Elaine Machetti, I'm from the United Nations Volunteer Program. And I had a question for both panelists, uh, in part looking back but also looking forward at uh, the involvement of Iraqi people in their own, the reconstruction of their country. Uh, One thing that the United Nations Volunteers Program does is mobilize national volunteers And we've seen over and over in many developing countries that people who volunteer together begin to trust each other. It builds social capital and goodwill in the community. So what I would like to know is in connection with the reconstruction of those, I think it was 900 or so schools, uh, were there volunteers who contributed to that and in what way? Uh, And also, if either of you have a sense of an existing culture uh, or openness to volunteerism among communities. Great. I'm going to let the panelists respond and then I'll open it for another round. Ambassador Frankie, would you like to start? We have to
1: hold um, that
3: close to you. If I could start with the last question first before I forget it. Um, yes, in fact, uh, my understanding is that, uh, and I have some direct experience of this as well, uh, is that many parents were engaged in the reconstruction of the schools uh, throughout the country. Um, My old organization, the Iraq Foundation, happened to know this because the Iraq Foundation was engaged in doing some some of that work. Uh, So I know, yes. And indeed, uh, Iraqis will volunteer, uh, provided they know what the purpose is and all the and most of the NGOs that I mentioned today are being created all over Iraq. Uh, they're mostly staffed by volunteers because there is no money. Uh, so when they're when they're highly motivated, when they have motivation and inspiration, they will volunteer. Yeah. Um, the, the on the question of Muqtada al-Sadr, um, I think I, I disagree with you because although there was a standoff. Between Baghdad and the U.S. military, and there still is. The negotiations have been carried out exclusively by Iraqis, uh, members of the Dawa Party, members of the Supreme Council for Islamic Revolution, and the sons of at least four Grand Ayatollahs in Najaf. Uh, the negotiation is entirely done by Iraqis. So. That is actually the kind of face that uh, I had talked about that I would have liked to see that that the intermediaries are Iraqi intermediaries and they're doing the talking. And it's because of that intervention of the Iraqis that we have not had a total uh, catastrophe in Najaf, that we haven't had an uh, an attack on Najaf. So we hope that 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 will continue. Um, the uh, uh, can NGOs bridge the gap Um, in fact they are best suited uh, to filling that gap because and that goes back to the cultural issue because in fact you not only have an American versus a Muslim Arab or Kurdish culture you also have a military culture versus a civilian culture and I think that is even greater than the Western versus Middle Eastern. Um, and it's, I think it's the military culture that has been the most difficult uh, for Iraqis to accommodate themselves to. Now I know we saw some um, very heartwarming pictures and it's not to say that I haven't seen them myself uh, in Baghdad and other places in, in uh, Central Iraq, but I have also seen uh, a clash of friction Between what a soldier thinks is perfectly normal procedure and what an Iraqi civilian regards as overstepping the bounds and so on?
4: General? Uh, Well, first of all, what great questions. Um, The answer to the easy ones first uh, the the mission up there, uh, like most uh, organizations, we have a higher headquarters and they helped us prepare the mission statement. I gotta say, though, that because all those regions on that, that geographical map I showed you are different, both ethnically uh, but as well as they're, they're different for a variety of other regions that I've already hinted to, infrastructure, et cetera, uh, we had to adapt that military mission. And so ours was more focused on providing stability and some, uh, civil military operations as well as doing the uh, combat operations part of what is essentially a guerrilla war. We helped develop the rest of the story in that mission statement. Um, is the military the right uh, organization to do these things? Uh, in a case like this, it was the orn- only organization to do it initially. Uh, and as we saw over a period of, what, essentially 12 months, is we actually went with a period of time when we had a large amount of NGO um, assistance uh, initially. And then, uh, as I said, I called it a guerrilla war. And uh, in the guerrilla war, NGOs are targeted. Uh, and part of it gets to that heart of the, 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 the difficult issue of how close can an NGO get to a military organization and without, try to, without losing its own, uh, well, how would I, I, I'm not even sure how to find the right words, but it, without losing its capability to say that we're independent, we're not a target, we're here to help you. And uh, I don't have the answers to that. I just will tell you, though, that the result was is that the NGOs ended up leaving a large part of the province that we were the most concerned about, where we had the most problems with the enemy, and, uh, and in fact, eventually left a large part of the Kurdish area as well, and then have recently came back in, but, again, still have difficulties, and, and they are being targeted as well. So sometimes the military is the only source that can do this in a way that makes sense, that is uh, efficient and uh, well, it's effective. Militaries are largely inefficient organizations, to be honest with you. Uh, how do you develop a way to cede responsibility? Because you, you cannot expect the coalition to do this forever. You can't expect your, your sons and daughters, if you're American citizens, to be able to do this forever. You have to have a, a way, but you should not expect at this point to have an exit strategy. We'd be kidding ourselves if you have exit strategies on here or if you're a student here about what are you going to do after Princeton or the Woodrow Wilson School. Uh, Exit strategies can be done over time. You don't have to have it done right now. You do have to have long-term goals, and we're working on those, I think, uh, in a fairly well-placed way. But clearly, it's not putting an Iraqi face on it. Clearly, the Iraqi people are going to take over almost everything that I described to you. And we tried to do something so that if we could not facilitate it, at least we wouldn't hurt it. Uh, that, that that change uh, uh, on doing that. Uh, what I would also say is is can end, one very difficult question about volunteerism. Uh, there were plenty of volunteers, uh, and again, as Madam Ambassador said, that many parents were deeply involved in their own school systems. Uh, not quite like your PTA, but much more <laughs> grassroots involved in. in Painting and things like that to, to get a school back off its ground and, and then providing some assets, books and things like that. Um, is there a culture of volunteerism? No, I didn't. I didn't see one in the north in our area of, in the north. Can it be there? Clearly, I think so. Uh, and then finally, uh, NGOs bridging the gap between the military and civilian. That, that is a really a, a very difficult question because it gets to the heart of the matter about how close can an NGO get to a military organization without losing its independence and then therefore becoming, in some cases, a target. And and again, i was just going to go back to the point, though, that if you are in an NGO and you think that you are not a target to a guerrilla who wants to demonstrate that a coalition cannot maintain security or that an Iraqi security organization cannot maintain security, you're kidding yourself.
2: Okay.
7: Uh, you took part of the question already away. I
4: have 2 questions.
2: One, one was actually, uh, I said I have two-fold questions. One was actually uh, <laughs> directly relating to uh, uh, General Schlosser's uh, last point, namely um, whether he could tell mm-hmm. us uh, something about the practical situation of providing um, security for NGOs out in the field without making them the situation for the NGOs more insecure by the sheer presence of military, we spoke about this. But uh, this is one aspect and the other aspect leads to practical experiences which you must have had in Kosovo and many of us had in Bosnia, Kosovo, and Afghanistan. And this may address both actually. The question of generational issues. Um, It is one thing uh, to deal with the adult population uh, uh, with the, uh, as you said many times, male is one, then you have the women, uh, the mothers, uh, uh, dramatized, then you have the very young ones, but then in between you have the juveniles from 10 to 20, uh, um, um, and um, uh, the experience, especially in the Balkans, was very dramatizing, uh, what I've seen uh, in Afghanistan uh, relates to this. What is the practical experience? from this uh, for you, General, uh, in terms of demilitarization, demobilization, decriminalization, and in many ways also de-traumatization. And, uh, uh, Madam Ambassador, is there anything specifically in your um, agenda for the immediate future to address specifically this high-risk group, which, if it isn't addressed, will most certainly move into the more illegal uh, and uh, non-acceptant
7: operations? Let me take a few more questions.
0: Yes, they're
8: open. Thank you very much. Um, Ambassador Franco, I was very interested in your remark that, and I quote, on, the 30, on June 30, we will regain our full sovereignty, because that gives a different emphasis to the 30th of June from what was reported in yesterday's Washington Post from congressional testimony on Wednesday that witnesses on behalf of the administration had stated that what would be handed over on the 30th of June would be limited sovereignty. And I was wondering if you could shed some light on this and particularly on the question of whether after the 30th of june the new political entity to which sovereignty of some sort is handed will have ultimate control on the use which is made of coalition forces in iraq and if it doesn't can it claim to have full sovereignty and if it doesn't have full sovereignty, what might the implications be for the ability of that new Iraqi political authority to legitimate itself in the eyes of a population which might see a lack of full sovereignty as implying that the country is still under significant occupation?
0: There looks to be a question right behind you and then down here and then we'll close it. <laughs> there and then the, you'll, you're next. No, you're, you'll be next. Yes. He's got the mic and then he's going to bring it to you after. Go ahead.
7: Uh, General, thank you very much for being here, but we're sorry General Petraeus couldn't make it. Uh, With respect to his new duty, what is he going to be doing differently that's going to cause the situation with respect to training uh, the Iraqi Civil Defense Force and the new Iraqi Army that wasn't done previously, because obviously what's been done previously is demonstrated with what happened in Fallujah was uh, a failure? Okay, last question here in
1: the
0: middle.
3: Thank you very much. My question is actually to General Schlosser. I would like to know whatever you might say, that movie was very much of a military propaganda and also your own presentation, if I may say so, and we can expect nothing what the American military might. Everybody knows that, but I would love to know if you were asked, if I were to ask you or anybody in the audience, and what are the shortcomings? of that military mind politically? And what is the level of reflection, self-reflection within the army to be able to criticize its own shortcomings, even a movie like that, even pacifying everyone with Carmina Burana in the background in an attempt to pacify.
1: So how would you defend yourself and what is really going on within the Pentagon when you
3: watch it? How do you criticize yourselves? What kind of a mirror you hold onto yourselves before you bring it to the crowd? Thank you. All right.
0: Uh, would
4: you like to begin? <laughs> well, given that latter statement, I mean, I'll I would yeah, I think it would be very difficult to logically to be able to criticize myself if I had such a shortcoming. But um, let me just say that, um, that's a, you know, there's often been accusations of a military mind. I, I would just have to say that, uh, you know, we didn't make up resumes, I mean, I was educated in the same schools that any of your students were. My master's in his master's in foreign service at Georgetown. I went to a public school, University of Kansas, and I did postgraduate work in the JFK Center for a full year at the Harvard. General Petraeus was educated here. Now, and if if you feel like there's a difference in a military mind, um, I'm not sure that we actually think so on this side of the house. I mean. I mean we are citizens, by and large, uh, representative of the entire American populace, just as deeply uh, homogeneous uh, as the American population is in the sense that we're proud to be Americans in many cases, just as deeply heterogeneous in that we come from all different be- basic ethnic groups, uh, religious groups. By the way, I mean, the way we worked with imams in, uh, in AO North is, is we had our own imam. Uh, he was an American citizen. Uh, and we, by the way, we have a large number of Muslims inside uh, uh, the American army. So, I mean, it, you basically asked me a loaded question that I really can't fairly answer if I follow the same logic that, that you, know, you, you basically asked. It would be very difficult. I would have limited capacity to be able to uh, finish off the thing. I'd just say that you know we are citizens just as you are. Now, that said, though, we we operate in the same sense that uh, we're part of an institution that has a very long history. And it is a history that is not just all combat-oriented, it is nation-building. We've done a large amount of nation-building throughout large areas of the world, deeply involved with Muslims over the last 20 years, uh, as you might expect, and as you've heard just about my own background, um, but also deeply involved throughout the the rest of the world. Uh, with that, I, I don't want to, you know, I, I would just say that we come from a uh, part of the American society and reflect you. And I would say that I look at out here, and I see a lot of probably, uh, but I would think are probably previous veterans as well. So uh, I'm not sure we all share the same shortcomings. Uh, with that, though, I'd like to kind of move out and say, kind of work backwards through some of these things. What would General Petraeus be doing differently? Well, if I knew fully, I'd probably be there and he'd be speaking to you. Um, but what I would say, though, is, is, is that we're going to change, I think, how we're organized. Um, and that we've made some mistakes. There is no doubt about uh, how we've tried to work with the Iraqi security forces. I think that you can fault us throughout the country of not getting onto the, that task fast enough, robust enough, uh, and with a sufficient amount of attention to detail. And I think that you're going to see that uh, come together under, un, under a single person that has got basically the responsibility and the resources and the background uh, to try to work that very difficult uh, scene between what is the new Iraqi uh, army and the rest of the security forces, which are by and large, as I showed you, made up with police forces and, in a sense, this group called the Iraqi Civil Defense Corps, think of as the National Guard, which is, in fact, one of the more capable units, but also, you know, was deeply disappointing. I'd see that that all would happen probably potentially underneath uh, General Petraeus, should, in fact, he get the mission to go beyond just his uh, three- or four-week period of time right now. Um, the question of um, of generational issues is actually absolutely fascinating, The one that uh, is... Uh, as you know, it was, a, was very, very, very difficult for us, and Kosovo remains a, an issue in the Balkans and will remain an issue for all of us uh, within the, this society in Iraq. Um, by the way, it, it's a similar one, I believe, in Afghanistan, but, uh, and, and I have not put a great deal of thought behind it, and uh, it's because uh, what you are confronted with is, in fact, a, a series of generations uh, that uh, in some cases, I remember going through and always saying, Well, gosh, it's the young, young people that most understand why we're here. It's the young people that most appreciate us. And it's not the soccer ball diplomacy. Uh, it was the young people that we felt that, and often in a sense, had the a, had a capacity to hope, that a capacity that had been destroyed over 25 to 30 years. And uh, let me just say that, because I don't have the answers, and I haven't put a great deal of thought about it. I'll say the future of Iraq lies in many cases with its young people, with some great guidance by some of its uh, very young people, too. Uh, (laughs) And with that, I'll get off the talk.
0: I'll I'll, uh, turn to to Ambassador Frankie for the last word. but I just have on the generational question. I should say that I was in Doha in January at a US Islamic World Forum, and there was a journalist about my age. So I graduated in 1980, just when the hostages were taken. And he was uh, strongly anti American, and we had a back and forth, which was the nature of the discussion. But afterwards, I went up to him and I said that a friend of mine had just come back from Tehran and that. Uh, while he was there, a certain number of pe- young people had come up to him, this was last May, and said, when is, when is President Bush going to invade us uh, in a positive way, meaning you know, we should be liberated. So I put this sort of gingerly to my, this uh, uh, journalist who was my age. And he looked at me uh, and said, well, that's just obvious. I mean, if you live in a country where your government likes the U.S., your children don't like the U.S. And if you live in a country where where you uh, are opposed to the U.S., then your children love it, as if this were clearly a universal uh, of a different kind. So with that, let me turn to you for the... Well,
3: well, I I want to confirm what you just said in... the general has has said, which is that the young people are the the ones who are most excited about the change. And it doesn't stop at 15. It goes into the 20s. And I think part of the reason um, this is not scientific evidence, uh, part of the reason is that Iraq has been so isolated for the last 24 years and the adults, in a sense, have Uh, gotten used to it and have sort of accommodated themselves, but these young people who are eager, Um, they're eager to be part of the world, they're eager to connect, and suddenly um, the change makes it possible for them. I haven't seen so many kids lining up at internet cafes, trying to send emails to anybody out there. (laughs) And looking for pen pals, and it's it's truly amazing. And, of course, they're not looking back. I mean, I must say, most of the Iraqi population, this is very curious, I noticed this in February, they're not looking back, they're looking forward, they're all looking to the future. But the younger people, even more so. They want to travel, they want to see the world, they want to do things. Uh, But, of course, that means that if they are, again, disappointed and deceived in their expectations, the backlash is going to be far greater. And this is what we absolutely have to guard against. The other thing that um, is very noticeable in Baghdad, certainly, is that we are getting a subculture of street children. Mm. Of street I, uh, children? Uh, yeah, and I don't know if this is the same in Muslim, I'm afraid I haven't been up there, uh, but it's very distressing, there are um, scores of people from the ages of six to eighteen, who literally live on the streets, day and night. They eat on the street. They sleep on the street. Um, th- we are. We think there are drug problems that are emerging. Certainly, there's a certain element of alcoholism, petty thievery, and so on. And um, the the this is one of the problems that nobody has come to grips yet. And this is a social issue, which. I was hoping that some NGOs, international NGOs, would actually address, but I haven't seen any of them do it yet. Now, I know that some Iraqi NGOs in Baghdad uh, are trying to do something about it, but their resources are limited. Uh, On the sovereignty issue, yes, Um, well, I know that uh, Secretary Wolfowitz uh, said that uh, Iraqis would only have a little bit of sovereignty Um, we think we're going to have lots of it and um, I don't want to be facetious about this but when you look at where we started last May or June or even July with what is now the governing council being nothing but an advisory council and then the gradual creation of the ministries which over the months have been able to Uh, to a larger and larger degree run their own affairs the transfer of June 30th is indeed going to become uh, let us say at least a notable a complete transfer of sovereignty over decision making domestic decision making over policy over investment uh, over the running of the uh, line ministries and over expenditure now the one thing that we will continue to need substantial assistance with is security, and that includes border security and it includes domestic security. Um, we hope that it will be possible. In fact, uh, let to, to shape this a little bit, the Iraqi police force have been so far very effective in combating petty crime. Um, you know, thefts and and looting and and, and so on and so forth. Uh, What they have not been able to uh, deal with is terrorism and acts of sabotage. We need allied assistance, coalition assistance in that and in border security. And that should be regulated by an agreement between the Iraqi government and coalition forces Now, in theory, Resolution 1511 does cover this issue, but I don't doubt that a new government that takes over in June 30th is going to want to sign some kind of status of forces agreement. Additionally, and this is part of the test of sovereignty, we anticipate being um, back at the UN with the seat of the UN and with a seat at all kinds of other international organizations. Thank you.
0: Before I thank our speakers and and close, I want to uh, uh, just remind you uh, of our two additional keynote addresses and tell you what's happening next. Over the course of the the colloquium, we we are focusing on the role of non-governmental organizations uh, with a particular focus on uh, AIDS on the one hand and nation-building on the other, and in the nation-building category, obviously, Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, Tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock, Sarah Shays will be speaking uh, on assistance to Afghanistan, not how much, but how. Uh, Sarah Shays, many of you may have known her as the NPR reporter from Paris and then from Kosovo. Uh, she has been in Afghanistan for the last five years uh, as the field director of Afghans for Civil Society and now the director of the uh, Doctar Agriculture and Livestock Cooperative. She has seen uh, Afghan society from many different uh, angles. And tomorrow at 1 o'clock, uh, we have uh, Ferdinand uh, Cardoso, the f- Uh, former president of Brazil, who is now the chair of the Secretary General's Panel of Eminent Persons on Civil Society. You will note uh, that in addition to the different country perspectives, we will have heard from representatives of governments, representatives of NGOs, and ultimately of the United Nations uh, to give us uh, the full range of perspectives. You might have wondered why on a Colloquium on non-governmental organizations. Our first keynote speakers are two members uh, of two governments. Uh, the answer is because much of this, these two days, are exploring the movement between and across, and the cooperation among the government sector, the nonprofit sector, and if we had another day, uh, we would include the private sector. But what you've heard uh, to start us off with are many of the parameters uh, within which non-governmental organizations have to work. We can't have non-governmental organizations uh, without governments at the same time. We've, I think, heard a very interesting set of discussions about the relative roles, and I have to just say personally uh, that even in uh, Say the last five years, the idea that I would be standing here with the new uh, ambassador uh, from Iraq to the United States uh, and a general who has participated uh, in removing Saddam Hussein from northern all of Iraq, northern Iraq, uh, is not as much progress as we need to make, but it is progress.
1: Thank you very much. <laughs>
0: The next panel 1 is in this room on art our-